0: One day during lunch, I was a general foreman on a high-rise downtown working on a curtain wall gang, and I was walking down the street, and I walked past a, a big bookstore on Wabash Avenue called Crocs and Bertano, and there was a little book in the window that said Haymarket Revisited. And I went in there, and I picked it up, and I started reading this book, and I found out what Haymarket was all about. There was a labor struggle for the eight-hour day.
1: That's Ironworker Rich Rao on the brand-new Ironworkers Rising podcast. Hosts Anna Woodbury and Ron Gray talk with Rich and with Charlie McAllister, both ironworkers who got bitten by the labor history bug. Drawing on Rich and Charlie's extensive experience and knowledge as educators, historians, and activists, they discuss historical events such as the Haymarket Square Massacre, or riot depending on who you ask, the Homestead Strike, and more. I had been interviewing politicians and stuff around
2: chemical right to know, and it would take one case, I remember it took 25 takes to get three coherent sentences. When I interviewed these building trades guys, it was one take almost every single time. These guys spoke from the heart, they spoke from the gut, and they spoke from knowledge.
1: On Labor History in 2. The year was 1942. The labor movement
3: lost one of its most prolific voices. T-Bone Slim was born Maddie Valentin Pioca-Hutta in Ashtabula, Ohio.
1: I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today.
4: This is the Iron Workers Rising podcast, standing with you to fight for workers' rights everywhere.
5: Good day and welcome. We're your hosts, Anna Woodbury
4: and Ron Gray. This is our first podcast, and we're excited to welcome our guests, Charlie McAllister and Rich Rowe. These are two gentlemen with extensive knowledge of organized labor as educators, historians, and activists.
5: Welcome, Charlie and Rich. Thank you both for being here. Great to be here. Can you start us off with just telling us a little bit about yourselves and how you got involved with organized labor? Rich, do you want to start?
0: Sure. I've been an ironworker for over 50 years. I started my apprenticeship in October of 1970. Uh, my book number is eight five nine two six two, 262 that I'm very proud of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I served a four-year apprenticeship with Local 63 in Chicago, and uh, went on to work as a journeyman, foreman, general foreman, superintendent. I ran for business agent in 1995, and uh, was successful, and I uh, finished the last 18 years of my career as a business agent out of Local 63. Probably the the point that I won't elaborate too much on, uh, I'd like to talk more about it later, though, is the point that uh, I became radicalized, I guess, for lack of a better term. It was in the spring of 1986, and it was the 100th anniversary of Haymarket. Growing up in Chicago, we have all heard about the Haymarket riot, and I think very few people know what it was really about, Uh, 1969. During the days of rage, the Weathermen faction of the Students for a Democratic Society blew up a statue of a Chicago police officer that stood in Haymarket Square. Uh, It was rebuilt, and a year later, they blew it up again. So it was always a controversial issue that I knew little about. But in 1986, the Chicago police were on heightened alert, and are wearing all full battle gear, uh, riot gear. you know, anarchists and all kinds of uh, leftist demonstrators were coming from all over the world to Chicago for this 100th anniversary. But also, labor leaders were all coming to Chicago. Lane Kirkland, president AFL-CIO was there. Presidents from all the international unions were coming to Chicago. So one day during lunch, I was a general foreman on a high rise downtown working on a curtain wall gang. And I was walking down the street and I walked past the a big bookstore in Wabash Avenue called Crocs and Bertano's. And there was a little book in the window said, Haymarket Revisited. And I went in there and I picked it up and I started reading this book and I found out what Haymarket was all about. There was a labor struggle for the eight hour day. And, uh, and I was enthralled in the book. And as I got near the end of the book, they were talking about the dedication of the martyr's monument in Waldheim cemetery. And it mentioned that the speaker's dais was draped, in the crimson banner of the Architectural Ironworkers Union of Chicago Local Number Two, and I was in the Architectural Ironworkers Local Number Sixty Three. Had never heard of Local Number Two, and uh, and I immediately had to learn more. Led to my lifelong passion and study of labor history.
4: That's interesting, Rich. That learning about an event in labor history was your turning point, where, in your own words, you became radicalized in organized labor. Charlie, why don't you tell us about yourself?
2: Well, I grew up in the 60s. I was very involved as a teenager in John Kennedy's election attempt, met Bobby Kennedy. And I was a 60s activist, civil rights movement, was at the March on Washington, heard Dr. King. I actually met Dr. King in 1962, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, very involved in the anti-war movement. I would have served in the Civil War, the Revolution, or the World War II, but I was totally opposed to Vietnam. I was an environmental activist. I was a hitchhiker. hitchhiked in over 30 countries in Europe, Africa, Mexico. Then when I came to Pittsburgh in uh, 1973, decided I really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of it and became, wanted to become an industrial worker started out in restaurants. I was a union rep. Then I became. uh, did a lot of construction work, non-union construction. I got fired once for trying to organize. Then got machinist training through the CEDA program. I went in and after two or three job shops, small shops, entered the big leagues, uh, union switch and signal founded by George Westinghouse. The union was UE, a radical union, and a very good, well-run union, and got there in 78. In 1982, we had a six-and-a-half month strike, a very bitter, terrible strike that led eventually to the closing of the plant. But I was, after the strike, was elected chief steward of the plant, and then for three-and-a-half years was the prime union leader there, and with steel worker and other activists fought the industrial collapse in this region. But in 1990, after I was elected legally terminated as chief steward of Switch and Signal. I got a job because of my education up at Indiana University of Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania Center for the Study of Labor Relations. And I did chemical hazard training. I did a lot of international work, Poland, Haiti. I went to Haiti many times. And uh, it was in 1990 that got really involved with Steffi of the steelworkers, you know, f- and f- wanted to do a series, actually. only did the first one. But it was very important for me it was building pittsburgh in the course of doing that video i got to meet the elders of the pittsburgh construction unions at the time and they were an extraordinary bunch carpenters operators iron workers ibw and plumbers truly guys who had gone in one case the ibw going back to 1922 lockout here in pittsburgh and where they were out of work IBW was totally out of work for 16 months and the wisdom of those elders and the impressive nature of their answers to questions i had been interviewing politicians and stuff around chemical right to know and it would take one Case, I remember it took 25 takes to get three coherent sentences. When I interviewed these building trades guys, it was one take almost every single time. These guys spoke from the heart, they spoke from the gut and they spoke from knowledge. And so have a great deal of respect for the training that the building trades do. The major event that we reported on in Building Pittsburgh was the march of the 45,000 construction trades workers protesting the penetration of non-union construction in central downtown Pittsburgh. That was an extraordinary, nonviolent, the largest. Demonstration, at least nonviolent one, maybe 1877 railroad strike, might have been the same numbers approximately. But ext- that was extremely violent, but this was extremely disciplined, controlled the entire city, took over the city at 7 a.m., blocked everybody from getting in, marched, chanting Union labor, Union labor. Who built America? The workers, the workers. Who won the wars? The workers, the workers. It was extraordinary, and the black police chief very wisely blessed the whole thing and marched with the leadership uh, of the uh, forty-five thousand. And it was an extra, and it was not reported outside of Pittsburgh. You want to talk about capitalism's nervousness about worker organization? That was forty-five thousand people shutting in a major American city down, and it was hardly mentioned anywhere outside of Allegheny County. So that gave me a real sense of the importance the discipline and skill and and training of the uh, building trades people and so i'm very honored to be here today
4: thanks again to both of you for being with us man after listening to what you guys had to say i've lived a pretty boring life (laughs) Let's talk about labor unions in general and why they started in the first place. Charlie, why don't you give us your thoughts first?
2: Pittsburgh, the oldest, the first unions were shoemakers and they wanted two things. They wanted to increase, this is 1814, they wanted an increase in wages, obviously, but they also were concerned about the quality of their work. Most Pittsburgh was then a frontier town sending people down the rivers uh, to the center of the country, uh, pioneers, so to speak, and they were making shoes and boots for them. Well, some of their owners of these places they were working wanted them to cheat on the shoes, make them uh, use less leather, make poorer leather, et cetera, make more money. And they did not want to do this. They wanted to maintain the quality of the work that they produced. And I think that's something that really resonates with building tradespeople. And uh, so they were arrested for conspiracy and restraint of trade. It was a major argument about it the people said, Hey, we fought a revolution <laughs> that was concerted activity in defense of human liberty and rights and the other side said, no, this is a, an issue of economics and these people are by shutting down these shoe uh, cons- uh, making places are taking away this person's property and rights to a to make money. And fortunately, the, the courts came down on that side and the, much of the history of the 19th century is the the struggle to get recognition for the rights of people to organize and to act together in a concerted fashion. And it, then it was, it was a crime to talk together, to conspire, to breathe together. And being together in solidarity and concerted activity. That's the essence of unionism. We had amazing struggles here in Pittsburgh. The most famous is the Homestead Strike of 1892, which really was a watershed in American labor history. Certainly, it it marked, unfortunately, for the next 35 years, total non-control of the industrial sector by unionization, the crushing of the very well-organized craft union, Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, the crushing of that union with blunt force of the Pinkertons and the, and the power of the state, really imposed employment at will, and every young person in this country virtually is working under employment at will. We're the only civilized, or so-called civilized, country that where a person can be fired for good reason, bad reason, or no reason. And you have no rights unless you have a contract or unless you're part of a protected classification of people for specific injury, like sexual abuse or racial discrimination. But as a worker, America, you have no protection, you are Out And that is something that really needs to be changed and to have that workers have greater rights. And particularly the way they get it in this country has been union organization and long, proud history of that, which is covered over in the books, not taught in the schools.
5: Wow, that's super interesting, Charlie. And it's such a shame that something as important as our labor history is not covered in schools. Right now there's a bill, uh, Bill 1144, in New Hampshire that was introduced early this year requiring public schools to teach labor history. Let's hope this becomes law in New Hampshire and that other states follow their example. Rich, what's your insight on the labor movement and unionization in the U.S.?
0: The concept of unionism really started taking off uh, with the industrial revolution in America as especially along the eastern seaboard industrialized and then After the Civil War, the industrialized North was dominant over the agricultural South. And we started seeing a really strong separation of wealth in this country, uh, you know, which has been Mm -hmm. referred to as the Gilded Age, where the first mega millionaires are starting to pop up. And we have a a very strong separation of wealth in this country. You have the very rich and you have everybody else. And, uh, you know, people who moved off the farms or from uh, a a craftsman type existence. They couldn't compete with the factories and they have to move into the cities. We see the cities growing. Uh, Workers are living in tenements, working from dawn till dusk for just bread and water, basically, you know, just really subsistence living and the concept of union solidarity to try to make their situation better is really starting to take hold. The Knights of Labor come out of the garment industry initially, and they appeal to people, and, uh, and the Knights of Labor grow, especially after they have a confrontation with one of the richest men in America, Jay Gould, and his railroad. They win some concessions, and people flock to the Knights of Labor. Their organizers, all they can do is sign people up soon. They have 700,000 members. They go from hundred thousand to 700,000 almost overnight. So there is a need there that that people want representation. They they want to better their condition. And I I see the growth of the American labor movement uh, coming out of that in the post-Civil War era in response to the Gilded Age. We we see a a, a much more progressive line of thought. And in that, there's radical elements that that want a complete overthrow of the capitalistic system. Others feel that, that we could work within it and uh, just get a fair share of what labor produces. Labor creates all wealth. You know, workers want a fair share.
4: You are right, Rich. Workers want and deserve their fair share. Let's hope history repeats itself and we see another organizing boom. I think what we're seeing with Starbucks and Amazon is just the beginning. People are finally standing up for themselves, realizing we are divided, both financially and politically. And the only way to change is through action or organizing. Did either of you have any additional comments you'd like to add, Charlie?
2: there's there's just been more and more successful strikes which we hadn't seen in 30 years i mean the grain millers the coal miners down south i mean the attempts to organize amazon although defeated the first time it's been ordered to be re-held the election uh there's 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 ferment and once the wave starts which is what the 30s uh, it looked totally in 1929 the union movement was virtually crushed and yet Four years later, it was an incredible force just sweeping through the industrial valleys, the coal fields, and all through society, the garment workers and many others.
0: What's interesting today is workers going on strike who are not represented by a union, yeah. you know, teachers in, yeah. in, in places. And, uh, you know, that, that is yeah. very interesting to me that uh, the workers yeah. are going on strike without the need uh, of union representation that they uh Decide they've had enough and they, they go on strike. And
2: Four years ago, we just were down commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. Arguably, yeah. it's, it's unclear because they didn't count that the dead were never really accounted for. But 10,000 miners, armed miners, marched on southern West Virginia, and we were down commemorating that. But what was very interesting was that four years before, the West Virginia teachers rose up, pitiful wages, terrible working conditions. Put the red bandana of the miners on, and won amazing concessions from their legislature. And they refused to go back to work until the school bus drivers got the same raise as they did, which is what solidarity is all about.
0: You know, interesting about Blair Mountain, it's the only time that the United States government used airplanes against American citizens.
2: Well, no, they did it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, also. Although it wasn't, you know, wasn't right. the U.S. government; it was the oil companies that dropped bombs on the people the black folk in Tulsa a few months before the Blair Mountain, but that was a privatized uh, operation. You're right. The first government was in West Virginia.
5: We have a question about what you already touched on regarding incidents like the Haymarket Riot and the Homestead Strikes. Throughout history, workers standing up for their basic rights have been met with violence time and time again. Can you share some of the details of these events and explain why it's so important to understand what happened and how it affected the labor movement? For me,
0: I think the most pivotal event in, in U.S. labor history is Haymarket, because it's like one of the first instances of uh, inter-ethnic solidarity. It didn't matter mm-hmm. you know, what ethnic group you belonged to. Everybody had a common cause in, in this issue, and Samuel Goppers uh, was the leader of a small organization called the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. It was a splinter group from the Knights of Labor. They were the skilled trades, and the skilled trades felt that because the Knights of Labor were an all-inclusive organization, that they didn't discriminate against anybody, regardless of race, sex, ethnic origin, uh, religion, anything. There, There was no discrimination. All workers were welcome, and all workers identified themselves as workers. The skilled trades, however, felt that by representing all the workers, that they were being held back, that they couldn't achieve what they felt was their just compensation. And they felt by the use of the strike, which the leader of the Knights of Labor was against, they felt by the use of the strike, by withholding their skills, that they can get a bigger share of the pie. So Samuel Gompers, as the head of FATLU, he calls for a general strike to commence on May 1st, 1886. And workers are not going to go back to work until the eight-hour day is achieved. And this strikes a common chord with all workers. I mean, we were a nation of immigrants uh, in the 19th century, and immigrants are naturally clannish. They, they stay in their communities where people speak their language. They you know, talk amongst each other, but rarely with other ethnic groups. But this was something that struck a common chord with everybody. And Samuel Gopper's proclamation on May 1st, 1886 strikes, you know, strikes home with a lot of people and, and they get on board and, and, and cities start to organize all over the country. And in Chicago, they had some pretty dynamic organizers that really got behind this movement, some of them from the radical left and some of them from the more mainstream labor movement. But together, they come together for this common cause. And on May 1st, 1886, a lot of workers across the country go on strike. Not all of them, but a lot. And in Chicago, quite a few, 100,000 workers march down Michigan Avenue in protest on May 1st. May 1st is a Saturday. May 2nd is a Sunday, and there's a lot of picnics, and a lot of people are agitating for the strike, and they want the strike to grow. May 3rd comes, and one of Chicago's most dynamic labor leaders is a fellow by the name of August Spies. August Spies is a German, he's a furniture maker by trade but he's a pretty intelligent guy. He speaks fluent German. That's his native language, fluent English, Bohemian and Polish. And he is addressing a group uh, in a lumber yard, a bunch of laborers. They call them lumber shovers. And uh, he's addressing this group of lumber workers. And he's speaking to them in their native language about the eight hour movement and a strike. And his comments are very well received. And he's about halfway through his uh, his program and large groups start peeling off. And he asks, one of his aides with him, he says, what's going on? Did I offend somebody? He says, no. He says, right down the street is the McCormick Reaper plant and they're bringing in scabs to break the strike. So he goes down there to see what's going on and there's picket lines around the McCormick Reaper plant and scabs are being brought in. And just then the Chicago Police Department shows up and uh, the head of this uh, police station is a Captain John Bonfeld. They call him Blackjack Bonfeld because he's not afraid to use his blackjack. And he shows up and without provocation, he starts firing into the strikers. And August Spees sees a striker gunned down right in front of him. And he can't believe it. The guy's unarmed. He's carrying a picket sign and he's outraged and August Spies is the editor of a German-speaking newspaper called Der Arbeiter Zeitung, or the Workers' Daily, and uh, he goes back to his printing press. and There's no television, no radio, so he has to get the word out. He wants to call for a mass labor rally the following night, and he wants to let Chicago's workers know what he just witnessed, what he saw. So, at his printing presses for his newspaper, he prints. 20,000 flyers that call for this mass meeting. The flyers are printed in German and English because one third of Chicago's population speaks only German and he wants to reach as many workers as possible at this time. So the following night, May 4th, he holds this massive rally in Haymarket Square, which is just a widening of a street, Randolph Street in Chicago, where it would be like a farmer's market on weekends and it would easily hold 20,000 people. So he calls for this mass rally. This is early spring in Chicago. Weather's very unpredictable. May 4th comes, it's raining, it's cold, it's windy. He expected 20,000, 2,000 show up. He's having a hard time finding speakers. His speakers aren't even showing up. He sends some of his paper boys out. that work at the newspaper, says, find some speakers, anybody. Speakers find another Chicago labor leader by the name of Albert Parson. And he's just returning from Cincinnati where he was organizing workers for the eight-hour movement. And he's with his wife and kids. The kids are coming down with colds. It's cold and rainy. They ask him to speak. And he says, I'll come for a little bit. And he comes and speaks and he leaves short. By now, the crowd is down about 200. Chicago's mayor is there, Carter Harris. He sees that it's a peaceful rally, that it's not going anywhere. He goes down the street to the police station where Captain Bonfeld, the same cop that shot the workers the day before, is there with about 200 of his men. And he tells them, it's a peaceful meeting, you can disperse. And the mayor rides off and he goes home. Bonfeld doesn't take his orders from the mayor of Chicago. He takes his orders from Chicago's fat cats. He's on the tape, So he's under orders from Marshall Field, Cyrus McCormick, Potter Palmer, other Chicago's big business leaders. Once the mayor's out of sight, Bonfell says, let's go boys. And they head down the street and they're going to kick some ass. The workers see the cops coming. They notice it isn't going to work out well. They turn and they start leaving north down Desplaines Avenue. The cops take after them. And just then, First time in American history, a dynamite bomb blows up in the front ranks of the Chicago cops. August Spees and a Methodist lay preacher by the name of uh, Fielding are on a platform speaking. Neither one of them threw the bomb, but in the ensuing chaos, the Chicago police start firing indiscriminately into the crowd. Eventually... Chicago, uh, seven Chicago police officers die and 67 are wounded. Six of the seven police officers are shot by police bullets. Only one police officer died from the bomb. Four workers are killed and 50 are injured, possibly more died. They, they were taken home and probably died at home and they were afraid to take them anywhere that they would be implicated in this and get in some kind of trouble. Eventually, they wanted to find who did this immediately. But ironically, they weren't that interested in who actually threw the bomb. They wanted to find the leaders of this rally. So they chose eight of Chicago's most prominent labor leaders and put them on trial for the seven police officers who died. So it's going to be an eye for an eye plus one. The person who threw the bomb was never found and was really never sought after. What they really wanted to do was put an end to the nascent labor movement in Chicago. Eventually, they were all found guilty and sentenced to die. Two of them pled remorse and said that they were sorry. Their sentences were commuted to life in prison. One of them, his only crime was he donated $2 to the Arbiter's Zeitung newspaper for the purchase of a printing press, and the printing press printed those flyers to call for the rally at Haymarket Square. That was his crime. For that, he received 15 years of hard labor in Joliet prison. His real crime, however, was that he was a teamster organizer, and he attempted to organize Marshall Field's delivery drive, and for that, he got 15 years in prison. Appeals were made. They were taken all the way to the Supreme Court, which refused to hear the final appeals, and on March 11, 1887, there were five of them them were scheduled to hang. The night before the execution, the most radical of the bunch was a German carpenter by the name of Louis Link. He was an organizer for the Carpenters Union, and out of all of them, he was the most outspoken and the one that the cops hated the most. And the night before the execution, he was taken out of his maximum security cage that he was held in with the other defendants, and he was put in solitary confinement. The next morning, he was found with half his face blown off. They say that he had smuggled a dynamite cap into a cell, lit it, and committed suicide. But it's hard to believe that while these men were, you know, maximum security and he was in solitary confinement, that he can cut somehow smuggle a dynamite cap in. And the following morning, November 11th, 1887, the four of them were led up to the gallows and they were hung and they died in downtown Chicago. And the following morning, they had a funeral procession, and workers lined the streets from Milwaukee Avenue down to the train station, and their bodies were taken out to the suburbs to a German cemetery called Waldheim, or a forest home, and they were buried in unmarked graves. And this was the only cemetery in Chicago that would take them with the stipulation that they would be buried in unmarked graves. An interesting side note to this is the one of the martyrs who died, Albert Parsons, he was an American. Everybody else of the Haymarket martyrs were formed born, born. You know, they, they were all born in Germany and became naturalized U.S. citizens. Albert Parsons could trace his lineage in the United States back to 1632. His ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War and very long lineage in America. He was born in Alabama. His family migrated or moved to Texas, and uh, they, were, they owned a farm, and they, they were considered middle-class farmers, planters. When the Civil War broke out, his brother enlisted in the Confederate Army and he was given a commission because he was a landowner, considered a gentleman, and he was given a commission. Albert Parsons, at 14 years old, enlists in the Confederate army to fight alongside his brother. He enlists in the Confederacy to fight for honor, to fight for Dixie. After four years, He comes home, a battle-hardened 18-year-old veteran. Him and his brother had fought under Stonewall Jackson, and they had been in some of the major engagements in the Civil War that Stonewall Jackson was engaged in. When Albert Parsons came back from the Civil War, he figured out what it was all about. He went there to fight for honor in Dixie, but becoming an 18-year-old battle-hardened veteran, you know, he took a hard look at himself. He wasn't necessarily raised by his mother. He had a nanny. This woman was the one who bathed him, who cooked for him, who put him to bed at night, told him stories in bed, looked under the bed for monsters, you know, taped up his knee when he scraped his knee. He loved this woman. He called her Aunt Esther, you know, to him, she was family. She was the one that that he looked to, to be comforted. And he had just fought for an institution that was going to keep this woman in slavery and he was ashamed of himself. And he dedicated his life to the abolitionist cause. He becomes very active in the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, along with General Longstreet and a few other Confederate uh, leaders. And he starts an abolitionist newspaper in Texas. And he distributes this newspaper throughout Texas and talking about his ideas and and how their cause was wrong. And while he's doing this, he meets and falls in love with an African-American woman who's a former slave named Lucy. And they get married and they have kids. He's not the most popular guy in Texas. They are harassed and burned out by the Ku Klux Klan. And they move to Chicago where they start a new life and make sure that this never happens to him again. He becomes very active in politics uh, he runs for office in the city of Chicago a few times, becomes very active in the Socialist Labor Party. They even nominate him for president of the United States. He has to decline because he's not 35 years old. And in the Constitution, it states you have to be 35 to be president. But he's a very active labor leader in Chicago, orator, editor in a newspaper called The Alarm, uh, an English-speaking newspaper. And uh, he, too, you know, is one of the most noted haymarket martyrs. The wife of Albert Parsons, Lucy Parsons, she wanted the world to know about this. And uh, she went all over the country talking about this, you know, travesty of justice in this country that we talk about our shining example, our constitution, Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, and how this can happen, how people can be executed for words that they said and not for deeds that they did. She even went to Europe and talked and uh, George Bernard Shaw became a, a very strong supporter. He helped her in Europe to get the story out about what happened. At Haymarket in 1889, Samuel Gompers wanted to send a delegation to the World's Fair in Paris. This is where they built the Eiffel Tower. At the World's Fair in Paris, that they were going to have a international meeting of uh, labor leaders from out the world. And Samuel Gompers, by this time, had changed the name of Fatlu to the American Federation of Labor. Put together the funds, and it was still a fledgling organization. And they sent a a delegate there. His name is Hugh McGregor, and they they sent him to Paris to talk about the Haymarket Martyrs. And what he wanted to do was call for May 1st to be set aside as an international day of solidarity for workers, to march for the eight-hour day, to march for democracy and workers' rights. His proposal was adopted, and since then, May 1st is celebrated as Labor Day or May Day in every industrialized country in the world except for the United States and Canada. So that's the impact of Haymarket.
4: Thanks, Rich. What's really hard to believe is that people were executed for their beliefs and what they said versus what they did. It's intolerable and unfathomable to us today how our government was remiss and willing to turn a blind eye towards those responsible for enforcing the law and abusing their authority. Charlie, why don't you give us the details of Homestead and tell us the consequences of that defeat and what it meant to all workers at that time.
2: The issues at Homestead were iron-making had been a craft, basically. It's an unbelievable beat to me. I'm, I'm a Civil War buff. I've hiked most of the battlefields. Uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather lost his hand in the Third Battle of Winchester. But that war, with all the incredible carnage and artillery and guns, was fought with by uh, implements made by iron workers making 100 pounds at a time what really homestead says about things is that rapid technological change can completely change the dynamics of struggle of class struggle and we have serious as ron was saying we have serious class struggle back then and serious class struggle today we have uh, we had a brief time from the 1930s to into the 70s, roughly, where the middle class was expanding, or at least and then stabilized, and, but then began going into decline. And this incredible inequality of wealth began. What happened at Homestead was the workers had a large level of shop floor control they had tradition of linking their wages to productivity which of course was going through the roof with these monstrous new machines carnegie wanted to break the connection to production frick wanted to break the shop floor presence of the organized union they were had a contract in 1889 so this was the renewal of the contract and they wanted total control over the hours nobody under the union regime worked they didn't work sundays except for operations like the blast furnace that had to be at least kept going over the weekend everybody worked from 8 to 12 maybe sometimes 14 in the open hearth. but after the defeat over half the workforce worked seven 12s and not only did they work seven twelves, but after time after the defeat of the amalgamated and the crushing of the union, they put them on swing shift. And that meant that you'd work one week daylight, one week night turn, and then you had, that was a notorious long turn when you had 24 hours straight in that mill. But what it was really about, it had no rational basis. The only thing it was about was crushing civic participation by the working class. That's what it was about. You could not run for office. You could not be take full part in the community. The community became completely dominated by the mill management and professional class, and there was no longer any union represent. 1892, Homestead, the Workers' Republic, the entire council was union, and the mayor was one of the great union leaders of the homestead strike. That's what was broken at homestead.
5: That's crazy how eliminating civic participation suppressed the voice of workers and contributed to the destruction of the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. That was certainly a blow to organized labor at that time, and only through struggle and dedication did labor unions like the Iron Workers rise from the ashes. Our next question is: Why was the Iron Workers Union formed and why did it see such explosive growth? Uh, Rich, since this is more in your wheelhouse, why don't you start us off? Well,
0: 1871 was a Chicago fire. Now, there, now, obviously, there had been people working with metals long before that, but 1871 was a Chicago fire and it completely burnt down the center of the city. Chicago is a rapidly growing city, and because of where we were located at the tip, of Lake Michigan, and when the i Canal was dug, the I&M Canal connected the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River, eventually. So we had an inland water route from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico and with the Erie Canal from the Great Lakes to the eastern seaboard. And shortly after it's completed, then the railroads come to Chicago. So Chicago becomes a central distribution point primarily of lumber from the virgin forests in Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. It comes down into Lake Michigan where it is milled and distributed throughout the the treeless plains, basically. So Chicago becomes a distribution center for lumber and then later livestock, meat processing and packaging. But but primarily first, it was lumber. So with lumber being a cheap, plentiful building material in Chicago, the city is built primarily out of wood. Even the streets and sidewalks are made out of wood. So in 1877, when the fire starts, The city goes up like a tinderbox. There's too much infrastructure to just abandon the city. We have the railroads are still intact. The canal is there. The lake's not going anywhere or the Chicago River. So it's decided to rebuild the city bigger and better than it ever was. And Chicago goes into a building boom. Downtown property becomes very valuable. The only way for developers and owners to maximize on their profits is to build higher. So they build buildings six stories tall. That's about as tall as somebody's going to walk up. So they're building buildings six stories tall, all out of masonry. They're fireproof. The thing with masonry construction is that the higher you go, the thicker your walls have to be on the lower floors to support that weight. And as you make your walls thicker, that means you have less rentable floor space on the most valuable property, which is the first floor. Because the higher you go, the more you have to walk, and you have to have a heck of a business for patrons to want to walk up, you know, four, five, six floors. The home insurance company from New York, they have a piece of property in Chicago. They find an architect and they give him his assignment. They says, we want a lot of rentable floor space. We want large window to let in a lot of natural light. They don't have air conditioning yet. So we want to let in a lot of air and natural light, large floor space, and we're also going to use a new innovation the Otis elevator. So they give their assignment to an architect named William LeBaron Jenny. So as he's pondering his assignment, he's going over engineering data, he's going over his drawings, going over his books, and he's piling everything off to his right. He glances over and he's been piling all of these engineering volumes and all his notes and prints. He's been putting them on top of his birdcage. And his birdcage is supporting a weight far greater than the birdcage itself And he's thunderstruck. They've been building bridges with iron and steel since the Civil War. And he says, I could take the same technology and I could build a skeletal framework for a building. And now the walls are no longer load-bearing. Now the walls are only there to keep the elements out. And I can make these walls basically as thin as I want. I can make the windows as big as I want because the walls are no longer load-bearing. So he designs a building 13 stories tall the tallest building in the world at that time, and he makes it out of structural steel framing. This is an innovation in the construction industry, and this takes off not only in Chicago, but all over the country, because everybody looked at Chicago and said, hey, if Chicago can burn down, we could burn down too, and they start using structural steel technology to build their building. 1889, at the World's Fair in Paris, they saw what Gustav Eiffel did with the Eiffel Tower, a 1,000 feet tall, and that inspires American architects to build taller and taller. Now the problem is with this new technology and it's sweeping the country, every city wants to build their buildings out of structural steel, maximize their floor space, wide open windows, thin exterior walls. It makes a lot of sense. The problem is that the steel mills aren't rolling the shapes that the architects and the engineers are specifying. The architects and engineers are figuring out what they need, how big the flange has to be, how big the web has to be on these beams, and the mills aren't rolling all these different shapes. The mills are rolling plates. And so they haven't caught up with this technology. So if you look at older bridges, if you're from an older city like Pittsburgh, and if you look at the older bridges, or if you ever rehab an old structural building, you'll see what I'm talking about. That these I-beams and these channels—they're riveted up out of plates and angle. You've an elevated structure in your town, an older elevated structure—you can see this. You can see examples of this. You know they're still around in, in plain sight. It took a lot longer to fabricate these members than it did to erect. So we had booms and busts in the erection of steel. So the steel would come out. The iron workers could erect it a lot faster than the shops and the steel mills can fabricate these. So iron workers had to travel if they wanted to keep working. So as they traveled from town to town, sometimes they worked union. You know, They had these little fledgling unions that weren't affiliated, but sometimes they worked union. Sometimes they were forced to work non-union. A fellow by the name of George Geary out of Chicago, steel erector, had a boomerang quite often, traveling around. He says the only way that we're going to get this straightened out is we're going to have to organize the big steel producers like Carnegie. Carnegie soon sold his interest then became United States Steel, but it was the only way that they were going to ever get recognition, get a uniform wage rate, is to organize at this time United States Steel and their erection division American Bridge. And that's pretty much how our union started was targeting American Bridge and some smaller steel erectors at that time. You know, the first several years of our existence, we're pretty much centered around trying to organize American Bridge, which eventually ended up in the McNamara Fair. That's pretty much how our union got its start. It was through an architectural innovation that swept the country.
4: That's extremely interesting how the Great Chicago Fire and the innovation of building with structural steel to rebuild played a part in the founding and growth of the Iron Workers Union. Charlie, you're from the Pittsburgh area. Our union started in your own backyard. Can you tell us what you know about the Iron Workers Union and why you think it formed? We also heard that you were involved in getting some sort of marker dedicated to our union. Could you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, the founding convention, I helped get a state historical marker with Ray Robertson, who I know is a good friend of many. Here, I mean, obviously we, we're a city of bridges. We have more bridges. They used to say Venice had more, but now they found a couple more in Pittsburgh, and they now, we claim we have more bridges than any other city, and we're a relatively small city uh, in terms of geographic size. So there were a lot of bridges here, uh, and the Union was founded in uh, 1896, but the Wabash Bridge Collapse in 1903. Was it was very traumatic here. About a dozen people were killed, people on the boats underneath, uh, barges, as well as iron workers uh, dropping from the bridge that collapsed in the center. And uh, so I think, the, you know, the drive for safety and health in a very dangerous Industry is obviously central. Also, I think of Red Collins, who was the apprentice director of the Ironworkers, and the elder that we um, interviewed uh, for building Pittsburgh, and he, he, and others like T.J. McGarvey, Marine, who organized uh, the construction uh, free. No, not a paid. Nobody was paid to build the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Pittsburgh. One of those beautiful memorials uh, to veterans in the country. I think it the wall in Washington, D.C., and that was built by union labor, by iron workers primarily, with no compensation. Contractors gave everything. Iron workers have a deep sense of solidarity. It's a culture. Red Collins used to say, it's it's a way of life. T.J. McGarvey always said that. It's a way of life. And I, I think the satisfaction that comes from being able to walk into a city and see your work uh, demonstrated around you is an extraordinarily powerful spiritual psychological boost and gives those people, the building trades people in general, a type of pride that's much harder to find when you're making, you know, switches and signals and it goes all over the country or making steel, which you can't tell where where your steel came from necessarily. So it's there. You see it. It's, it's the legacy. And I remember we taught a class to trades and we've done a bunch of classes on the side for free for various people. And I remember the guy that gave his presentation and he was supposed to, his presentation was telling us to walk outside and look around and he began to name all the things that he had had a hand in and it was extremely moving to everybody in that class so i think that pride that uh that safety solidarity gotta look out for each other i mean constantly it's like being a coal miner coal miners have the tightest solidarity of any union you're down 500 feet 3,000 feet in Germany, 5,000 feet in South Africa. You better depend on those people you're down there with. And uh, that's. I think that that kind of mutuality, solidarity, looking out for each other, and and the culture of the trades is something I've always admired. That's that's the iron workers.
5: (laughs) Rich, earlier you mentioned the McNamara brothers. Would you like to expand on that and the role it played in our union's history?
0: It's one of those blood and guts stories. And what impact did it have on our union? In the long run, probably not so bad. But uh, in the short term, it almost put us out of business. In 1903, uh, the general president of our organization, Frank Buchanan, called for a meeting with the uh, president of American Bridge. And he made a proposal that the ironworkers would establish a uniform wage rate for American Bridge all across the country. And this, this had appeal to American Bridge because they wanted to get away from labor strife as much as anybody. So Frank Buchanan was a, a smart, no-nonsense kind of guy. And what American Bridge liked about the uniform wage rate for iron workers all across the country, now this, iron workers in New York weren't happy about this because then they would be making the same wage as somebody in central Ohio who probably had a much lower cost of living. But the appeal to the uniform wage rate was for American Bridge is their customers were the railroads and also building you know, high-rises in the cities. But the railroads were the big customers building bridges. And their argument was, how can I charge a customer X amount for a... Hundred thousand ton bridge in New York City, and have a different wage rate for the same bridge outside of Columbus, Ohio. You know, to them, to that customer, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad or the Pennsylvania Railroad, a bridge is a bridge, and they want to base their costs on what this bridge, you know, is going to cost them. Why would it fluctuate from city to city? So Buchanan's proposal of a uniform wage rate really appealed to him. And uh, he had to bring it back to the membership, you know, the representatives of all the unions of the international unions. And one of the stipulations was that Pittsburgh, Local 3, was uh, on strike at a tube mill in McKeesport. And they would have to call off their strike. And if they called off their strike against this tube mill in McKeesport, then American Bridge would sign an international agreement and the ironworkers would have the recognition they were looking for and they could move on from there you know, the union would be recognized. Local three refused to call off their strike. Buchanan had to tell uh, American Bridge, no deal. And that was it. American Bridge says, fine. From this day forward, we're an open shop and uh, we're not employing any union ironworkers. That started a labor war. And, you know, it started out with pickets and then uh, the labor war was escalated with company thugs, Pinkertons and Baldwin Felts and uh, people of this nature, uh, you know, trying to rough up the ironworkers. Ironworkers aren't pushovers. You know, and, uh, and they fought back. Eventually, uh, there was some sabotage on construction sites. Usually it would amount to blowing up the rig or blowing up the steam compressor, you know, something of this nature, always at night. No one was ever hurt, but it was escalating. This war was escalating and Pinkertons were employed to ensure that the, the you know, non union workers were getting on and off of these job sites, uh you know, without being harassed and uh it was getting ugly and, and this thing. Was going on year after year after year. So that's happening in the eastern part of the country where the iron workers are trying to organize American Bridge. Out west, Los Angeles has a large union drive going on. San Francisco, after the San Francisco earthquake in 1907, becomes the most unionized city in the country. Even their mayor is the business manager of the Carpenters Union. So San Francisco now is starting to compete with Los Angeles, which is a totally non-union town for everything that San Francisco has going on, shipping and everything else. So San Francisco feels it's in their best interest that they organize Los Angeles. And there's a major organizing drive going down in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is run by a fellow named Harrison Gray Otis, who owns the Los Angeles Times, but also vast real estate holdings, And he is determined to keep Los Angeles union free. So there's this major organizing drive going on in Los Angeles. And the AFL is plugging a lot of money into this. Into this organizing drive. So because Harrison Gray Otis owns the Los Angeles Times, he basically controls the media in Los Angeles. He controls the media in Los Angeles, and he continues to vilify the unions through his newspaper, and he has very little competition as far as the media goes in Los Angeles. So as this is going on in 1910, two o'clock in the morning, the Los Angeles Times building explodes. And there's a huge fire and 21 people are killed and many more are injured and, you know, horribly disfigured and scarred up. And it's, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, the next morning, ironic, the newspaper hits the street and says, Unionist bombs wreck the times. I always found this odd, you know, because the explosion happens at two in the morning, five in the morning, the newspaper hits the streets and says, Unionist bombs wreck the Times. Also, there's a picture of the Los Angeles Times, you know, engulfed in this inferno. Now, this is before people have digital cameras. This is when you have a camera with a tripod and you got to put the blanket over your head to take a picture. And it takes quite a bit of setup. But they had a picture and this thing went up like a matchbox because of all the printing ink and all the flammables inside this printing facility, plus all the newsprint. All the newspaper and everything, I mean, it, it went up like a matchbox. But yet they had a, a full page picture in the front of the newspaper. Five o'clock, the unionist bombs wrecked the Times. And Harrison Gray continues to editorialize that it was the unions that blew up his printing plant. The same day that this happens, a detective arrives in Los Angeles from Chicago. His name is William J. Burns. He actually eventually becomes like the first director of the Bureau of Investigation, which later became the Federal Bureau of Investigation with J. Edgar Hoover. But he's a Chicago detective at this time, private detective, and he arrives in Los Angeles the morning of the explosion. Now, he had been working for the National Erectors Association, which was American Bridge and a few smaller steel erectors, and he had been investigating the dynamitings at construction sites back east. He arrives in Los Angeles, and Harrison Gray Otis puts up this big reward and everything to find out whoever did this to his printing plant, and eventually this William J. Burns accuses the iron workers of blowing up the the printing plant, saying that it's very similar to the type of situation that has been happening on the construction sites back east. So eventually, they find the iron workers who are responsible for these dynamitings, they weren't sophisticated criminals. You know, they, they weren't very clever. They left the trail a mile wide, they say, and they found James McNamara, the brother of the general secretary of the iron workers, John McNamara, operated with another fellow named Morty McManigal, and they had been dynamiting these construction sites. And pretty much by circumstantial evidence, They implicated them in the Los Angeles Times explosion. They pled their innocence right to Samuel Gompers. And Samuel Gompers says, we're behind you, boys. And Samuel Gompers uh, assesses every member of the AFL. The iron workers assess every member. And they hire the greatest lawyer this country's ever had, Clarence Darrow. And he's like Johnny Cochran, F. Lee Bailey, and uh, all these guys rolled into one. And Clarence Darrow takes this case on. But he knows it's not going to be easy because it's in Otis's town. And Otis runs this town. He knows that the prosecution is going to take out all these widows and orphans. You know the people who were killed in the fire. They're going to parade all these people that are horribly disfigured in front of the jury. You know he knows that there's going to be a lot of emotion attached to this, and he knows it's going to be a tough case. Eventually, he's approached, and one thing that Clarence Darrow prided himself on is he never lost a client to the gallows. He was a uh, A staunch opponent to capital punishment, and he knew it was going to be a tough case, and he knew if he was going to lose this case, that these guys were going to hang. And I mean, to him, that was deplorable. He couldn't stomach that. And he went back to the brothers, and he said, "I really think that you guys should really consider pleading guilty, and you won't hang. You know, the one brother is going to get life imprisonment. James McNamara, the one who actually was doing the bombing of the construction sites, and our general secretary John McNamara, he would get 15 years in prison." So, Clarence. Darrow was very persuasive and he convinced the brothers. And the, the day that they went before the judge and he says, How do you plead? The brothers said guilty. And even the judge says, You said what? And he said, We plead guilty. And all the newspaper reporters were there, they were jumping out the windows. This is the crime of the century. It's going to be the trial of the century. And they pled guilty. Samuel Gompers, he was on a, a sleeper car, on a train, traveling someplace. And they woke him up in the middle of the night. And they showed him the telegram. And he cried. And he says, you know, this is going to do labor no good. No good at all. And the AFL was forever changed. It it, it, it really became a much more conservative organization after that. You know, Gompers felt that one more blow like this would be the end of the American labor movement. So it was the closest our union And perhaps the entire AFL ever came to not surviving. And the following year, even though part of the plea deal was that they would stop prosecution of the rest of the iron workers, it didn't. The following year, 87 international officers were arrested and put on trial for conspiracy in the Dynamite conspiracy trials. And it was another big show trial. Our general president went to prison for a while, and as uh, several other officers did also. And the whole idea behind this was, is they were trying to get them to implicate Samuel Gompers. You know, they wanted to say that he was involved from the beginning of this, and they wanted to bring him down. And bring down the entire American labor movement. So it, it was dark days for our union. We survived. And ironically, after all of this, our membership starts to grow. And the reason behind that is workers said, hey, right or wrong, these guys fight. You know, these guys stand up, these guys do something. So, you know, right or wrong in this situation, the iron workers got the reputation of being fighters. And standing up for their rights, standing up for workers' rights. And the organization grew. And I don't wanna say it grew because of that, you know, that it was a good thing, but that's how it was perceived that, you know, iron workers were fighters.
5: You said earlier iron workers aren't pushovers. That's that stuck with me. I think whether it's Pinkertons or today's union busters, that, that holds true. Maybe that's the lesson there.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty much been been our story. You know, in the early days, the, the way our union was founded, when William LeBaron Jenny came up with this innovation of using structural steel, it had been used on bridges. And the bridge builders were tenant workers. They worked for the railroads, and they traveled all across the country building these bridges. Rarely did they have a chance, other than work in their gang, of, you know, talking with other people. When they start building the high-rises, now they can move into cities, and now they could stay put. They don't have to travel all over the country. You know, now they can stay put in a city they can have a family. They, they can meet a lot of other guys who are doing the same thing. So a lot of them were you know, pretty rough guys who were itinerant workers going all across the country building bridges. And also this is at the end of the uh, sailing era. This is when steamships take over from sailing vessels. So steamships need a lot fewer sailors than a sailing vessel did. So a lot of these sailors obviously aren't afraid of heights. They go up in the rigging, up on the masts and everything, they're doing all this. They basically know the ropes, you know, they, they know how to do rigging they know how to handle stuff so this appeals to another pretty tough bunch of guys sailors who lost their jobs on these sailing rigs. you know and a lot of them especially on the eastern seaboard are attracted to this kind of work they take to it
2: such fascinating stories that uh, rich is telling i mean just quickly the the whole birdcage struck thing that's a really interesting uh they come up with that as they kind of origins of structural steel. It's very similar to George Westinghouse, who was trying to figure out how to break a train. Uh, up until the Civil War, trains could be about 20 cars long. Uh, each car had to be manually braked by a human being turning a wheel screw. And deaths were terrific. Crashes were horrendous. Speeds were could go much more than 20, 25 miles an hour. How does stop a train uniformly across great distance uh, was something he was pondering and a young girl showed up at his door trying to sell him a magazine subscription and he first kind of shooed her away but then he felt sorry for her and called her back and he opened up the magazine and he saw where Italian stone cutters were using compressed air to drive the diamond drills to drill through the Alps (laughs) the first tunnel through the Alps and he said if compressed air can cut rock at a distance through using compressed air, I can use compressed air to shut a train. And that was the insight behind the air brake, which then made it possible to make trains go 100 miles an hour or more. In the old days when we used to be able to do that. And then you needed switches and signals you needed train controls. And that's how Union Switch and Signal came about. And one of those departments at the switch became Westinghouse Electric because Westinghouse was open to the brilliant ideas of Nikola Tesla and he, had solved the theoretical problem of uh, alternating current and westinghouse was the right engineer to solve the practical application and make dynamos and the power generation that became the modern age i love that story but (laughs) of that i think it's very important and i love the phrase know the ropes Uh, i didn't realize that's where so many of the iron makes a lot of sense many of them would become iron
4: workers Join us on our next episode when we have Rich and Charlie back to discuss the hurdles of organizing and the relevancy of unions today. Thank you for listening to the Ironworkers Rising podcast, your Ironworkers Network. Please check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at www.ironworkersrising.org.
3: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1942. The labor movement lost one of its most prolific voices. T-Bone Slim was born Matty Valentin Pioka hutta in Ashtabula, Ohio. His parents were Finnish immigrants. The exact year of his birth is still uncertain, as is much of his early life. He eventually joined the Industrial Workers of the World, or the Wobblings. He wrote regularly for the IWW's weekly newspaper and magazines. He traveled the country working odd jobs. One of his acquaintances called T-Bone Slim a died in the wool hobo. Everywhere he went, he wrote. Those who knew him remembered he always had a pad of paper in his pocket. He wrote columns and poems and song lyrics with humor and poignancy. Eventually, T-Bone Slim made his way to New York City. He got a job as a river barge captain. And it was on this day in labor history that his body was found floating in the East River. The circumstances of his death are as uncertain as those of his birth. No one claimed his body and he was buried in a potter's field. Despite the anonymity of his death, his words live on as an inspiration for workers today. Some of the writings of T-Bone Slim have been gathered into a book called Juice is Stranger Than Fiction. His popular songs are included in the IWW's Little Red Songbook. Among them, A Worker's Plea, The Mysteries of Hobo Life, and A Lumberjack's Prayer. Here is the late, great Utah Phillips singing one of T-Bone Slim's most well-loved songs, The Most Popular wobbler.
0: I'm as gentle as a lamb, but they take me for a ram. They go wild, simply wild over me. Oh, the cop, he went wild over me. And he held his gun where everyone could see.
1: He was breathing rather hard when he saw my union party. He went wild, simply wild over me. Oh, then the judge, he went wild. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please help more folks find the show by liking it in your podcast app and passing it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Thanks to the Ironworkers Rising podcast for today's episode. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for Ironworkers Rising. Thanks also to Labor History in Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the rick smith show a labor themed radio show out of pennsylvania labor history today is produced by the metro washington council's union city radio and the kalmanovitz initiative for labor and the working poor at georgetown university the labor history today team includes ben blake patrick dixon leon fink sherry lincoln joe mccartan evan pap jessica pozak and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.